0: Welcome to Insight, a podcast devoted to subjects that are theological, philosophical, literary, even cinematic, especially biblical, but today, historical. I'm your host and presenter, Gary Nation. This is the second of eight episodes in a series that will track the history of Southern men who fought in the Union Army in the Civil War. Don't call them Yankees. Specifically, I'm going to be studying the 2nd Tennessee Volunteer Infantry, United States Army, and the men who made it up, including one of my ancestors, from the formation of the regiment through its first major action in the Battle of Mill Springs. A person's life is not small and inconsequential because it's without fame. Rather, great historical events lend their greatness to the individual lives that participate in them, And those events have acquired their great historical significance through the participation of thousands of unsung individuals like my ancestor, and perhaps yours as well. In the first episode, we met the men who we want to follow and learned about the immense historical and social pressures that led them to feel, to realize, that they were going to have to make a choice whether they wanted to or not. And now... After a Sunday meeting at a church, their individual decisions coalesced into a collective purpose, and that same day they said goodbye to their families and went off. Today, we're going to set off together with them on that hot Sunday afternoon in August. It's not going to be an easy trip to Kentucky, because rebels are blocking and guarding the way. Chapter 2, Camp Dick Robinson. How long till we're soldiers... August through September, 1861. Part One, A Hazardous Journey. The northward march began at Prospect Baptist Church, about three or four miles east of Stockton Valley, where they had held their meeting, and proceeded north collecting men as they went along. About 40 men were in the group. Their original destination was the southern Kentucky town of Barberville as the gathering point. The journey was not going to be an easy one, Virginia had already lost its own pro-Union mountain territory to federal control, and knowing that East Tennessee was a pro-Union stronghold, the the Confederates were determined to hang on to it. They had already exerted control over all the big towns and were patrolling the main highways. The only safe option for the would-be Federals was through little-known, seldom-traveled Indian paths and buffalo trails through the wooded hills. Well, despite a late start and a rough hike over land, they made 10 miles or more, depending on the route that they had to take, and camped that night at Swan Pond near present-day Harriman, just a few miles south of the Morgan County line. This was on the sprawling farm of Robert K. Byrd, the most prominent and vocal unionist in Roan County, a leading property owner, and a slaveholder. He would have been there to greet them, except that he had already left the previous day leading a large company who had signed up with him in Kingston. And he would be appointed commander of the 1st Tennessee Volunteer Infantry at the rank of colonel and would serve throughout the war at that post with an exemplary record, including service under Sherman in the Atlanta campaign until the regiment was mustered out in August of 1864. Well, the next morning... The men continued their journey, avoiding the road and walking pine-wooded paths whenever possible, and watchfully crossing open fields only when necessary. Other men continued to join their march, so that by the time they crossed the state line three days later, there were 360 of them. Their numbers swelling, it was becoming even more difficult to move without attracting attention, Cutting north through the notch, the company covered about 20 miles to Montgomery, the Morgan County seat. Now, wait a minute. I hear someone say, you must not be from Tennessee because that's not the Morgan County seat. That's right. But in 1861, it was. And though it shows up on no contemporary map, in 1861, Montgomery was a thriving town and still the business and political center of the county. That's right. Its businesses included two whiskey distilleries, a maple sugar refinery, a tan yard, a bark mill, a cigar factory, a turpentine distillery, and a blacksmith shop. Yet even then, Montgomery was already being eclipsed by the fast-growing German-Swiss settlement of Wartburg. Prior to the Civil War, efforts had been made to move this county seat to Wartburg, and in 1870 it was actually done. After that, Montgomery swiftly declined and eventually became a ghost town. All of that remains at today is literally is a pile of rocks from the old courthouse chimney somewhere west of Lansing off state highway 62 The next day from Montgomery they made another 20 north to Pine Top and arrived at the Tolliver Staples farm The name Tolliver is rendered in Jack Snow's account as Taliaferro. no doubt correctly Tolliver is the phonetic spelling of Taliaferro, reflecting how everyone pronounced it, and it's the spelling that endured after his death. After the war, Pine Top's name was changed to Stapleton in honor of Tolliver Staples. But when the railroad was built in 1879, the station was named Sunbright, and the railroad took over the town, and the town took on the name of the station, Sunbright, which is the name the town holds today. you know, it's too bad his name has been forgotten. Benjamin Tolliver Staples was a prominent man in that county. And one of the most interesting Civil War characters that almost no one has heard of. An attorney, he was also named the first postmaster of Pinetop in 1856. He was a former county surveyor, county clerk, and master of the chancery. He was active in state and local politics and had run for various offices. He was an ardent pro-Unionist who had supported Bell for president. He had dedicated his days post-secession to helping men escape Confederate hands to join the Union Army. And he was one of those who would be later arrested and taken to Knoxville in the sweep following the burning of the railroad bridges by Unionist partisans. He was suspiciously absent from home that night, but authorities had no evidence that he was a participant in the affair. Uh, We'll talk about the bridge-burning stuff later on. After his release, or more accurately, his expulsion from the state, he joined the federal forces as a colonel or adjutant of volunteers. There's, there's some confusion in the record regarding his specific service, but evidently he was killed in the war in 1863. According to one account, he was murdered by Champ Ferguson's guerrillas while being transported under their guard as a prisoner of war. Tolliver Staples had sufficient means and local prestige to host a large assembly on his property without fear, for the time being, of harassment from rebel patrols. His place was spacious enough for them to set up camp and had an ample spring or well for water. He also likely provided victuals. Most of the travelers don't seem to have had any personal knowledge of their host, however. Sometime during the evening, probably while they ate their supper, John Bowman introduced to them a guide who would take them to Kentucky. The gentleman, he explained, would be leading them from here until they were safely across the state line. They looked at the man skeptically. He looked old. Some would remember him as Old Man Staples. The, by the way, the name Old Man Staples comes from a separate oral history. Some, like Jack Snow, would just remember him as an, as an old man. He must have been an amazing character, seemingly a throwback to the old frontier, with a weathered face and white hair hanging down to his stooped shoulders. He, he looked like he might have been a guide to Davy Crockett back in the day but scarcely able to even survive the trip now. Was this Benjamin Tolliver Staples himself? It's possible, but I don't have direct evidence to say so. Certainly a man who had been county surveyor and postmaster would have a detailed knowledge of the backwoods and hidden paths. Tolliver Staples, though, was only 44. Well, he may have had the appearance of a much older man, but on the other hand... The legendary and mysterious old man Staples could have been, and I think probably was, one of his older brothers, Thomas, 54, or William, 59. In any case, the old man's outward appearance belied the true vigor of his frame, as we shall see. Staples informed them that from here they were going to take a detour. A direct route to Barberville via the highway through Huntsville and Oneida up to Pine Knot was just too dangerous. The rebels were aware that many, not just this group, were headed for the border, and they had pickets and roadblocks all along that way. Instead, they would swing northwest toward Fentress County. Now, Though not strictly part of East Tennessee, the vast majority of Fentress' population was of Unionist sentiment. And also, the area was sparsely populated, and although it was hilly, the mountains weren't high. The guide knew the woodland trails and passes intimately. He assured them that if they stuck with him, he would get them there. He surveyed what weapons that they had with them. According to Jack Snow, there were only a few guns in the crowd, but every man had a butcher knife. As the dusky light faded away, the old man admonished them to get the best rest they could tonight, because tomorrow they would cover more ground than they thought possible. Tomorrow night, he pledged, you will pitch your bedroll in Kentucky. The way he said it made them think he believed it, and it gave them confidence. It was still dark when their leaders roused them for breakfast. At daybreak, they were moving out. It didn't take them long to realize the old man was far from frail. The young men had to struggle to keep up with him as he led them over mountain and... This is John Jack Snow riding over mountain and valley through forest and creek with the agility of a deer. By mid-morning, they were crossing the big south fork of the Cumberland River. It was a deep ford. Six-foot-tall Jack Snow said that the water came up to my neck and some of the fellows had to be helped across. Snow remembered how, when we crossed the road about three miles from Jamestown, where a rebel army was camped, the guide told every man to have a stick on his shoulder as though he were carrying a rifle. We aimed to make him think we were ready to fight. It was closest they came to contact with the enemy on their journey. Well, they managed to pass undetected or at least unchallenged. But old man Staples continued to push on. For a good part of the afternoon, it rained on them. Even for young men used to a strenuous life, the pace was grueling. But no one fell out, and no one turned back. The sun had set, and as the last light of day faded away, the old man suddenly stopped and indicated that the company would camp here. They weren't home free yet, but he assured them they were now in Kentucky. He also told them that they had traveled 65 miles this day. No one questioned the fact. Years later, Jack Snow said, Such a bunch of worn-out, wet and tired fellows you never saw in your life as we were that night. Our feet were scalded and our muscles sore. When the men rose Thursday morning, old man Staples was already gone and they never saw him again. The mysterious old frontiersman continued to guide other groups of defectors and refugees from Confederate Tennessee to Kentucky, assisted by a man named Davidson from one of the oldest families in the county as a contact person. Well, our men still had a lot of ground to cover, but they were now freer to take the roadways. Travel was easier and speedier. Kentucky was still neutral, whatever that meant, but most of the population in this region was was pro-Union, and nervous about all of the Confederate activity around their border. They were glad to see the column of Tennessee volunteers and were hospitable. By Saturday or Sunday, they reached Williamsburg and stopped long enough to let the folks there treat them to a barbecue given in their honor. Likely it was there that they were told that Lieutenant Carter had taken the early comers away from Barberville and gone on up to a new camp outside of Nicholasville. By the following Tuesday afternoon, they had reached Camp Dick Robinson, and were standing in line to sign the enlistment cards. Upon their oath of enlistment, Alvis and Will Hicks were both assigned the rank of private. Will would eventually be promoted to corporal, but Alvis would remain a private throughout his service. For the next three and a half years, the story of Alvis Duncan Hicks will be one with that of the 2nd Tennessee. The regimental story will be long in turns, to the Army of the Ohio, the Army of the Cumberland, and the Army of the Ohio again. While in history these armies have stood in the shadow of the great Army of the Potomac, the part that they played in the war was by no means inconsequential. Indeed, their role was decisive, and even those who became subject to captivity made a vital and costly contribution to the outcome of the war. The recruits who arrived at Camp Dick Robinson were entering the U.S. Army through what, believe it or not, might be the first modern basic training camp in its history. Significantly, this experimentation took place not in the regular Army or at West Point, but with volunteers and in the West. It would take some time and a firm hand of leadership to develop, however. At first, it was all merely chaotic. Part 2. Bull Nelson. The effort to recruit loyal East Tennesseans to fight for the Union was one of Lincoln's own pet projects. Beyond his personal affection and regional affinity for that state, he saw it as a strategic key to victory. He was acutely aware of the region's Union sentiment, and he owned a profound personal sympathy for citizens he felt were trapped behind the lines of rebellion. He would have liked to reclaim that area as a separate state, as would soon happen in West Virginia. But that was a dream he knew was not realistic. While Lincoln did contemplate the possibility of a political victory, he primarily looked to the military significance of that region. Through its mountains and river valleys ran one crucial railroad line connecting the Confederacy's east coast to the Mississippi and the Gulf through the junction at Chattanooga. Moreover, there was great manpower potential in East Tennessee, if only it could be assembled, equipped, and organized. Lincoln and his Secretary of War, Simon Cameron, decided to focus on recruitment first, while continuing to study the possibilities of taking the area back, either politically or militarily. On June 27th, Lincoln endorsed Cameron's order, directing General-in-Chief Winfield Scott to, quote, send an officer to Tennessee to muster into the service of the United States 10,000 men. Lincoln also had an idea whom to send. Lieutenant William Nelson, U.S. Navy, was a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy, veteran of the Mexican War, a native Kentuckian. An imposing six-foot-four, 300-pound bull of a man with a reputation for a hot temper, Nelson had the not-surprising nickname... Bull. The brother of one of Lincoln's personal friends, he had gotten an appointment as a brigadier general and had already performed some military errands for Lincoln, most recently to organize home guards in Kentucky. He seemed a logical choice for recruiting Tennesseans since he was already in that region. Coming in on the political side of the project was U.S. Senator Andrew Johnson from Tennessee, a Democrat, who would be Lincoln's second term running mate and future successor. And, Samuel P. Carter's younger brother, James P.T. Carter, who ran the family's ironworks business until hostilities began breaking out. When Johnson and Carter came to Secretary Cameron to request rifles for Tennessee Unionists, Cameron directed them to Nelson, and the project got going from there. Nelson and Carter didn't really get along very well, and they didn't trust one another. Nelson was agitated by Carter's blabbing and contained, complained that the chatterbox was jeopardizing the whole project. Carter, however, was unimpressed by Nelson's security arrangements for the weapons, and he felt he exposed them to capture. But despite their differences, Carter did the footwork, returning to Tennessee in mid-July at considerable risk. He spent a couple of weeks scouting the area, headquartered in a safe house in southeastern Kentucky. And there he met up with his naval officer brother, recently returned from station in Brazil. Samuel P. Carter had passed through Washington long enough to grab an assignment for special duty to East Tennessee. He was scheduled to be breveted as a brigadier general of volunteers. And in the meantime, he acted in that capacity. Coordinating with his younger brother, S.P. Carter wrote to Johnson, quote, If I had authority to muster Tennessee men into service here and could place arms in their hands, they might be organized and made, very in a very short time, efficient. Johnson obliged and secured him the credentials. Having, quote, made all needful arrangements for the Union men to rendezvous in southeastern Kentucky where they could be organized, armed, and drilled, James Carter returned to Washington to report to Johnson and the White House. Samuel Carter stayed in Barberville to wait for the East Tennesseans to show up. He didn't have to wait long. The first group, a considerable body, he said, arrived on August 5th, carrying the U.S. flag at their head, some armed with long hunting rifles and many with a rough style of bowie knife manufactured by country blacksmiths, he later wrote. All were foot travel-stained, and bore in their torn garments evidence of the roughness of the way over which they had made their escape from the tyranny of rebel rule. But they were overflowing with enthusiasm. From the other side, a Confederate cavalry officer reported to his superiors, There can be no doubt that large parties, numbering from 20 to a 100, are every day passing through the narrow and unfrequented gaps of the mountains into Kentucky to join the army. My courier just in from Jamestown says that 170 men from Roan County passed through there the night before. The danger of the whole effort is shown by the case of John W. Thornburg, M.D. of Newmarket. A veteran of the Mexican War, Dr. Thornburg, organized a cavalry company and headed toward the rendezvous in Barberville on August 8th. After traveling all night, they stopped to rest their horses and drink coffee about 19 miles from the Cumberland Gap and then resumed their journey. At the top of the Cumberland Mountain at Baptist Gap, rebel troops attacked and cut off most of the group. Only about a third of them made it to Barberville, while Thornburg himself was captured, along with eight of his men. While Samuel Carter was receiving Tennessee recruits in Barberville, Nelson was staking out a camp near Nicholasville. He had found his spot on the property of Captain Richard M. Dick Robinson, a staunch Unionist. Ideally situated along the crossroads of major routes through the bluegrass, Robinson's house was a noted stagecoach stop. There was enough space for several thousand men to billet and train. It was a reachable distance from General Anderson's headquarters in Cincinnati, and it was also distant enough from the Tennessee border to discourage Zollicoffer from attacking it. Within a week or two after the Tennessee men began arriving at the rendezvous and just before the Roane County men showed up, Carter moved his operation to Camp Dick Robinson and began organizing the volunteers into regiments. Actually, he let the men organize themselves, according to their own familiar groups, with minimal intrusion other than to draw them into regimental numbers. Harper's Weekly published an artist's rendering of Camp Dick Robinson in its early days more than a year later ironically, after it had fallen under rebel control. And it's described in the caption that's printed with it, Our picture is taken from the southwest. Captain Robinson's house is seen just over the tents, a little to the left of the center of the picture. The road in front of the house, passing to the right of the picture, is the turnpike to the Cumberland Gap. Well, there are a number of things in the drawing that give us insight into the experience of the Tennessee men who arrived there. The regular dwelling for the men was the two-man tent. Within a few months, the hills would be filled with tents, and later, cabins for winter quarters. And significantly, the artist portrays full-size tents, which were phased out in 1862 in favor of the smaller, cheaper, more portable, and more despised so-called dog tents despite designed by General George McClellan. The larger tents would continue to be used for base camps. Each unit kept to its own area, and there are three such camps in this picture. There's one in the foreground, one in the background, right of center on the hill, and one left of center in the woods behind the Robinson house. The woodcut shows a company drilling in the midground on the right, indicating the major activity of the camp. Cooking was done over open fires. And there were rough wooden tables that could be used for eating, of course, but also for distributing supplies and even for games like checkers or dominoes or cards during downtimes. Regimental structure was fundamental to the organization of the army. A basic tactical unit of the infantry regiment was the company, and each regiment had ten companies designated by the letters A through K, skipping the letter J to avoid confusion because it looks like I and sounds like A, so... Each company ideally consisted of 100 men commanded by a captain. It was divided into two platoons, the first commanded by the first lieutenant and the second by the second, who were second and third in command, respectively. The platoons, in turn, were numbered off into four sections, or eight squads. A a sergeant led each platoon section and each squad had a corporal. The The company commander, was also assisted by a first sergeant who handled all the clerical duties and management details for the company. And each company also should have, should have had two musicians and a drummer. Well, we don't know the names of those for a company if there were any. The balance of the company comprised 80 soldiers at the rank of private. But very few companies retained full battle strength for very long, even if they started that way, due to desertion, disease and discharge, honorable or not, and even before taking, it, taking casualties in combat. There was not an orderly system of replacement, and throughout the war, most units fought at half strength or less. The 2nd Tennessee was no exception, and its numbers fluctuated throughout the war until November 1863, when, spoiler alert, almost two-thirds of the regiment was captured at Rogersville. Afterward, the remainder of the decimated regiment was assigned to various functions in Knoxville in the Cumberland Gap, mostly provost duty and off of the front line of combat until it was mustered out on August 3, 1865. Volunteer units were permitted to elect their own officers up through the company level. John Bowman was elected commander of A Company and awarded the rank of captain. His first lieutenant was 36-year-old Amos Marley, described as six feet tall with dark hair and dark complexion, but with blue eyes. Second lieutenant was Dr. Franklin Cottrell, 35, the only company officer of the line who would keep his same rank and post throughout the war. Doctor was his first name, by the way, and not his occupation, of which there is no public record. I wonder if they called him Doc. In some... Later civil records, he's listed as D.F. He survived the war and lived until 1906 in Loudoun County, Tennessee. Even for volunteers, democracy rose no higher than the company level. This was the U.S. Army, after all. Regimental commanders had to go through channels and be commissioned by Congress. Samuel P. Carter, for the time being, still acting as a Navy lieutenant on assignment, submitted his brother James and Roan County recruiter Robert Byrd as colonels for the two regiments he now had numbers for. S.P. Carter's own rank was a matter of official confusion for months. For the time being, he was still acting as a Navy lieutenant on special assignment. In October, he was awarded a commission as acting brigadier general of the United States Volunteers but he didn't resign from the Navy and continued for some time in correspondence to use his naval rank. Once, he was even mistakenly referred to by headquarters of the Army of the Ohio as Colonel S.P. Carter, Colonel, in an apparent mix-up with his brother. As for Byrd, he was the first to receive his commission on September 1st, and his regiment, consisting primarily of men he had personally enlisted, was formerly mustered as the 1st East Tennessee Volunteer Infantry. A restless James Carter finally received his commission as colonel on September 28th and was placed in command of the sister regiment, the second. With Colonel James Carter's commission also came authorization for him to assemble a staff. Now, notice that this is nearly a month after the assembling of the men for his regiment. So it's taking this long for organizational issues to begin really to gel in the camp. And so that can give you kind of an indication of how chaotic things continued to be. So he was able to choose staff officers now. So he chose Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Truett, whose commission came in November 1st, Major Eli Cleveland, 1st Lieutenant Daniel A. Carpenter as adjutant, Lieutenant George W. Keith as quartermaster, Joseph Key Gilbreth was named Sergeant Major, Samuel C. Honeycutt, quartermaster sergeant. Andrew Neat was named surgeon at the rank of Major, John T. Jones, assistant surgeon at the rank of Captain. William T. Lowry was the regimental chaplain, Protestant, from November 1861 through July 1863 and as such was numbered among the commissioned officers. In later years, regimental surgeon John Schradey, M.D., wrote an eloquent tribute to these volunteers. He writes, Of these East Tennesseans, it may be said that they were soldiers by birth and instinct, Indian fighters by inheritance, skilled in woodcraft, alert, tall, straight, and wiry, of intense individuality, and not much given to discipline. They expected from their leaders brave deeds as well as brave words. These were the valorous yeomanry who tilled their own soil, poor whites, not worth the ink of war correspondence, but to whom unionism meant exile, sundered ties and devastated homes, who knew their friends by whispered passwords, who hid by day and crawled by night, who followed the flag with the eye of faith, and who, silent warriors as they were, went down to silent graves, many of them in the hour of deepest gloom. Dr. Schrady, I'm sure, had come to grips with the intense individuality, as he put it, of these men, and no doubt realized early that the least efficient way to deal with this company was to pull rank, Not much given to discipline? Officers in the regular army seemed to feel that way about Westerners in general, but the Tennesseans, especially the Mountaineers, were particularly hard to handle and hard to train. Yet if they seemed roundy and undisciplined to the -the by-the-book types, they were also loyal, courageous, determined, and tough. Moreover, they were, in the words of one author, fanatical about liberating East Tennessee. Fortunately, they soon came under the command of a general who understood and appreciated them, who knew how to command their respect and shape them into fighting men. At the beginning, however, they had Bull Nelson's glowering presence standing over them. A story from the Louisville Courier-Journal in 1895 relates how the men remembered their first camp commander. Full of tireless energy, he seemed to require neither sleep nor rest— The sentinel, pacing his beat, was often startled long after midnight by the colossal form of the commander looming up in the darkness and approaching the camp from a direction from whence he was least expected. He was always an early riser, and consequently ready for the day's duties long before the camp was astir. The troops that enlisted under General Nelson remember him as boisterous and impetuous, impatient of restraint and contradiction, and utterly intolerant of the slightest infraction of discipline. Private Jack Snow tells of being assigned to picket duty shortly after his arrival at Camp Dick Robinson. He was given strict instructions that no one may pass without the password. Now, guard duty is stressful in an inactive way. There's not much to do, but one must be prepared for surprises. After several hours at his post on that muggy night, Private Snow spotted a figure approaching him in the darkness. Halt! Who goes there? "'General Nelson,' the man barked. "'Advance and give the password,' the private demanded. "'And as the figure from the shadows drew toward the lantern light, "'it was indeed the unmistakable imposing form of the commanding general. "'Now Jack Snow was not a small chap, "'but the the 20-year-old was dwarfed by the huge man. "'I am General Nelson. Give me your weapon, soldier.' "'Not really confident about what to do, "'private Snow stuck to his orders.' Never lowering his musket, he replied something to the effect of, General, sir, I'm on guard duty. I'd better keep my gun, but I still need that password. Pleased with the response, the general passed on to the next station to test other pickets. Nine new soldiers were sent to the guardhouse that night, either because they failed to require the general to give them the password, or they surrendered their weapons to him. Well, while the ragtag multitude was trying to get itself into some semblance of military order, General Nelson was scrambling to get suitable equipment for his brigade, with only minimal success. In the early months of the war, most of the volunteer regiments from the states were outfitted and financed by the states themselves. As a volunteer regiment from a state in rebellion, the Tennessee boys weren't backed by any state legislature, and Congress had not yet picked up the burden of funding for them. Thus, the new blue coats began their service without blue coats. No uniforms, supplies, wagons, any of the other equipment that an army in the field properly needs. For the first few months of their service, they were poorly equipped, shockingly so. They probably didn't notice it much until their counterparts from Ohio and Indiana started marching in. Compared to the crisply uniformed Midwesterners, they, in their civilian dress... Wide-brimmed hats, plain jackets, homespun and buckskin. They must have looked more like home guard militia than true soldiers. And if they had a chip on their shoulder about it, they hid it well. All indications from contemporary testimony are that they took it all in stride. But at least they had plenty to eat. They also had plenty of smooth-bore Harper's Ferry muskets to go around. At the beginning of the war, Nelson had procured 10,000 muskets with which to arm a home guard in Kentucky to counter a growing secessionist militia. And from this stock, he was supposed to arm the fighting men from East Tennessee. By the end of August, Nelson was looking after a still-growing force of over 6,000. Some sources estimate up to 8,000, but that was when the camp had reached full capacity. Nelson's brigade comprised five regiments of infantry and one of cavalry from Kentucky. The second East Tennessee, rapidly rising to full battle strength near 1500, made up about one-fifth of it. Still, the accomplishment fell far short of the original plan to raise and arm a loyal legion that would reclaim East Tennessee for the Union. Volunteers were still making the hazardous crossing, but the Confederates had succeeded in slowing down the movement and reducing the numbers getting through. For the rest of August and throughout September, the Roan County men were marking time, waiting for official designation as a regiment and for the appointment of Mr. Carter as their colonel. Jack Snow tells us that one of the liveliest topics of conversation among the new enlistees had to do with the terms of their enlistment. He says some of them did not understand the phrase three years or the duration of the war and wondered if they would have been there for 12 years if the war lasted that long. Well, as fierce as the argument may have gotten, most of them figured out it was just all talk anyway. Almost everybody believed that the war wouldn't last more than a few months. And once they got enough soldiers for a full army, they would return to their home state drive out the rebels, and return to their farms. As of now, though, everything just seemed to be standing still. The men were drilling, but the drills didn't seem to have a point, and too many of the men weren't getting it. Summer had slipped away, the early autumn leaves were already turning, but they were no closer to marching back to Tennessee to drive the rebels out. And the more stalled things were, the angrier General Nelson seemed to be. And in turn, General Nelson seemed to put stress on everyone from the officers on down to the privates. But they did not know how much things were about to change. Be looking for our next episode when the Tennessee men meet George Thomas. You've been listening to Insight. I'm Gary Nation.